Okay. Hey, in this sermon series so far, in this message series, what we've been doing is talking about God's doctrine. Remember that God's doctrine essentially exists of his greatness, his transcendent greatness, and his imminent goodness. So God is great and he's good. He exists independent of his creation. If my table here is the creation, he exists independently of that. But even though he exists independently of creation, he's also intimately involved with creation. He is both great and good. Thus far, what we've looked at is God's greatness and the attributes of his greatness. We've looked at his holiness. We've looked at his sovereignty. Starting this week and moving forward, we're going to begin looking at his goodness attributes or his good attributes. Today, we're going to look at the idea of compassion. Next week, we're going to look at the idea that God is love. They are intricately related characteristics. Um, but we're going to just dive right into that, and then we'll finish up uh, in the final week looking at a final attribute. Today, I want us to talk about God's compassion. The Bible says this about God. He is compassionate. He is someone who has compassion. And I want us to look over and over again at where that says that in Scripture and help us to come to a clear understanding of why that's such a vital characteristic for us to um, understand and adopt even in our own lives. But before we jump in, I want to invite us to pray one more time just to ask that God would make us teachable. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that not only are you um, okay with us seeing, thing, seeing the right things, but that, God, you move us to see things rightly. That we would not just see you as a blurry kind of blob over here, but that by your word you help us to, to um, move closer and closer and more clearly to the truth of who you are. Um, so that we could have the most intimate and compelling relationship with you possible in this life. And so, Jesus, today, would you, in your mercy, please, move everyone here, just nudge us a little bit closer, bring us just a little nearer to you as we talk about your compassion, how you compassionately love us. And you teach us, oh God, to compassionately love others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus 34. We're going to look at an Old Testament reference. We're going to look at a New Testament reference, uh, both, just to set all this up. So Exodus 34 will be on your screen. Verse 6 says this. Remember, um, in this section here, Moses has looked at God. He said, Yahweh, reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. Like, I want to know you. So just tell me something about yourself. This is like a, one of the many DTRs that Moses has with God, if you've ever read Exodus. This is where he's defining the relationship. Some of you are in dating relationships, and you get to that one point where, like, we've been going out for a couple times. Like, where are we? Do you like me? Do I like you? There's like a... You know, a piece of paper that you slide across the table. Do you like me? Circle yes or no. Right? You have some of those things. This is Moses' DTR with God. He's saying, who are you? I really need to know you a little bit more. Just knowing your divine name is not enough. Please tell me who you are. And so God says, okay, let me tell you who I am. And here's what he writes. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord Adonai, Yahweh, the Lord God, Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Over and over and over again. If you'll just go home and Google search this later, Google search this on your phone. Just look up God is compassionate in the Bible. Over and over again it says this, God is compassionate having loving kindness. God is compassionate having loving kindness. Who is Yahweh? He is the one who is compassionate. He has compassion on his people. Compassion, 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 compassion. But throughout the Old Testament, you see this over and over again. This is important because there are some of us who read the Old Testament about some of these more violent passages, and we go, oh, the God of the Old Testament is terrible. Well, no, the God of the Old Testament is compassionate. And this is a key characteristic of who he is. 
And we see this compassion extend itself into the New Testament, especially as we meet Jesus, as God comes to earth in the form of man and says, hey, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. Look at this. And here's what it says in the New Testament, if you want to make a cross-reference here in Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus, it says, went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Father is compassionate. The Son is compassionate. The Holy Spirit is compassionate. God, the triune God, is both transcendently great. He's also eminently good. And one of the ways he expresses his goodness is in the form of his compassion. What in the world does compassion mean? Let me give you a definition here. And this is based on the Hebrew word uh, that we use to translate compassion. Here's the definition of compassion I want us to work with as a working definition. And here's how it goes. Compassion is deep and tender love for someone, especially when they are attempting to be unlovable. Compassion, deep and tender love for someone, especially when they are attempting to be unlovable. We might even say it's deep and tender love for someone, despite the fact that they're trying to be unlovable. You know those people, or maybe this is a this is a mirror thing. You know yourself when you're trying to be unlovable, when you're just trying to be a punk. You have those moods, right? When you wake up, all of us have this. I think if you're a human being, you know, you wake up and you're just like, eh, not today, right? You just have one of those not today days where you're like, boss wants to get attitude with me, not today, no. Uh, teacher wants to assign extra homework, you're like, not today, right? Your friends want to be punks. They're like, you know what? I know you want to watch a comedy on Netflix, but we're just going to watch like British dramas. And you're like, not today. No, you just, there's not today. You intentionally say things to stir things up. You're just trying to create drama. You're just like, ah, not today, right? You get in those unlovable moods. Compassion is God's capacity to love human beings when they're being unlovable, especially when they're being unlovable. He says there's no amount of not today that he's not going to love you through. That's what it means that God is compassionate in what he does. And just to take this idea and move it forward in our hearts and in our minds, I want us to look long form at the New Testament in two of the more compelling stories about God's compassionate love for us. And the first one we're going to look at is in uh, Luke chapter 15. We're going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32. It's not going to be on the screen, so you may want to turn to it in your Bibles or on your phones. I'll read it. We'll have one verse on the screen here for you. But I want you to see God's love and compassion uh, in action, his compassion in action. Someone comes to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell me about kind of what the kingdom of God is like. What is God like? Give us an understanding. And Jesus basically says God is compassionate. But what does that mean? So he decides to tell the story. It's the story of the prodigal son. In verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus says, uh, it says, And he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The end. No, not the end, but the end of that part there, right? If that was the end of the story, you'd be like, that's an uncompelling story. No, it gets more compelling. Here's what's happened. There's two sons, right? There's a wealthy father. 
And the younger son comes to him and says, yo, dad, want the inheritance now? I'm just trying to find myself. I'm going backpacking across Europe, right? So just give me all my inheritance now so I can go backpack across Europe. I want no consequences. No one call me. I'm just going to, you know, just going to be free. I'm just going to find myself. Right? You get the idea that the son is trying to be a little bit unlovable. Okay? This is a part. He's being obstinate. We get, we get the sense he's being arrogant. He's, de- he's entitled. He's demanding things from his father. He doesn't want to wait till the inheritance has come to its fruition. He's just like, hey, give me that now. Okay, old man. I'm done with this life. Thanks a lot for raising me up to this point. Give me them bills so I can go spend them on whatever I want to spend them on. Thank you very much. And the dad gives him the money. Why? Because this father is compassionate. He loves his son, despite the fact that his son is presently being a little bit unlovable. But the story continues. In verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Europe, right? Um, the, there, in this far country, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. If you get the picture here, the son, after demanding his inheritance... His father is compassionate, gives it to him. He immediately goes to this far country, and he is just spinning it up. I mean, you can just tell he's going everywhere, just like throwing out the bills, right? He, um, much later in the text, you can see that he was hanging out with prostitutes, which is a very kind way of saying he is like sleeping with everybody. He's spending money on women. He's spending money on alcohol. He's spending money on possessions. He's spending money on entertainment. This is a guy who's just spending money on things that don't last. He's not investing it. He's not even thinking, hey, if I have $1,000, let's take 100 and put it in a mutual fund, and I can spend the 900 right? He's not thinking in any way, shape, or form about the long-term effects and the value of this money. He doesn't get his inheritance. He's being incredibly immature, and his dad knows he's going to go be incredibly immature and yet loves him anyway. Do you, you get the feeling of the compassion of the father at this point? This is a really, really not-today son, and yet his, his father loves him anyway. And his son, after spending it, has no more money, so he's now become an indentured servant to somebody, and he's basically working with the pigs. I mean, this is just, this is not a good situation, right? This is like cleaning the floor of a, like an arcade room, right? Where a bunch of middle schoolers have been, right? There's like soda and other weird things on the floor, and he's like, I mean, it's just the grossest environment he finds himself in. It's just, just super, super duper gross. Anyway, so he's there. Verse 17. Is that rain? It's the Lord confirming things? Okay. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Like, is that God being like, duh, check on your exegesis there. Okay. It's not Europe, right? Okay. Okay. I'm sorry, Jesus. In the 500th year of the, uh, the anniversary of the Reformation, I'm sorry. I'll make fun of Europe. I'm sorry. Okay. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, this young man, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have had more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is what's really interesting. He's come to his senses. This is a really important phrase. He has an aha moment. He's like, 
Not today, not today, not today, not today. Pig slop. Oh, okay. I see the error in my way here. I might have messed up along the way somehow. This may not be where I could ultimately or should ultimately end up, right? We've had some of those moments, right? Parents say, I know it's Halloween, don't eat all the candy, right? And what do we do? We eat all the candy that night, right? And we're like, yeah, what do my parents know? Sugar, 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 sugar. Yeah, this is so good. Chocolate, 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 chocolate. Right? It gets to one in the morning and we're like, ooh, mm. Oh, that's what they were talking about. Pacing yourself, okay? Not consuming so much chocolate, I throw it up immediately. Oh, right? Wisdom is starting to set in. And his response here is to then come up with this kind of sales pitch. He's like, okay, yeah, all right. I'm going to go back and see the old man and be like, all right, pops, listen up. I'm sorry. I messed up. I was wrong. But here's the thing. Why don't you hire me on as one of your servants, and I'll just, you know, I'll be near you. It's a convenience of needs. You'll get some effort out of me. I'll also get some access time to you. Yeah, it's really great. So you can tell in his mind, he's thinking, surely my father is upset with me because I was an entitled punk. So let me come up with a slick sales pitch to go back towards him and see if he will maybe find it in his heart to let me work on his staff. Because in his mind, he is now so um, far gone from being a son. He is he has basically ruined his entire reputation of being a son towards his dad. He's got he's to earn his way back to the father. And he's going to do so with a slick sales pitch. And here's what happens, right? In verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, a long way off. So just, just, okay, just get this, right? Because we've all been here, right? Like we've messed up. I'm going to go to the boss, I'm going to apologize, and hopefully I can earn and grovel my way back to this spot, right? So he's coming in, you can tell he's rehearsing it. Okay, Pops, look, here's the situation, right? He's walking up, he's walking up the long path. Father's on the front porch, sipping some iced tea, right? Like has the like old school like telescope thing, right? Just, you can tell. The reason he can see his son coming from a long way off is because he's been watching for him the whole time. And he sees his son coming. And now everything's changed. He is elated. The son is returning home. The father's been waiting. Cannot wait to go see him. So before the son can even get here, father gets off the front porch and just, you know, kind of slowly goes over like his son, races after him as much as he can. This is an older gentleman, I think, maybe, like much, much, much older, right? Okay. This is not like a 60-year-old dude. This is like a really, really old dude, right? Okay. So before he could even get there, his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's going into the thing, right? Oh, hold on, hold on. Thank you for the hug, Dad. <clears throat> Yo, Pops, listen. I'm sorry. I'm, he's going into the whole spiel. Like he's like, you know, he's like the worst vacuum salesman ever. Have you ever had a vacuum that doesn't suck? I mean, it does. It sucks because it doesn't suck. Hold on, let me start up. Right, he's going into his whole pitch. Right, he's inviting his dad to this multi-level marketing thing, and he's kind of going into the whole spiel. And watch what his dad does. His dad doesn't stop and go, "Son, let me listen to this." Oh, okay. You want to earn your way back? Oh, hold on. Hold on. He he doesn't do any of this stuff. Watch what the father does, who's been waiting on the front porch day by day for his son to return. Watch what this father does. Verse twenty-two. He cuts him off. But the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this is my son, that this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Compassion. The son comes back and thinks, I've got to earn my way back in. The father says, no, 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 you're my son. Let me get you a robe, let me get you a ring, let me get you everything that a son in my kingdom has. Come back, you're, come here, come on, you're a son. You're not a slave. You're, you don't have to earn your way back. Once you're my son, you're my son. I don't care how foolish you've been with your inheritance. There's a consequence for that, we can deal with that later. Since you've been gone, all I've been doing is longing for your return. Now that you're, return, you're, you're back and you've returned, let's party. Let's celebrate. Let's kill an animal because that's what you do, right? We all know this. It's a barbecue, right? That's what he's basically saying. It's like you're back, barbecuing, celebration, let's go. You're back. There's compassion. God is the father in this story who tells us over and over again, it doesn't matter what we've done. He loves us lavishly, and there's nothing we could ever do to earn that back. He loves us compassionately. There's nothing we could ever do to make him take that away from us. It's the good news of the gospel. He just loves us lavishly. That's who he is. God is a God of compassion. He loves us, especially when we're being punks especially when we're trying to be unlovable. Every time we come back, we don't have to go through a song and dance. We don't have to go through a whole spiel. He just loves us, right? I was talking with uh, one of our leaders today, and she kind of, and this is kind of the, the summary of her story. She was like, you know, I was walking, and I was like, I just turned around. I was like, oh, God's there, right? I was like, okay, God, I feel like I need to kind of come back to you. And, do, and she, she turned, boom, he was right there, right? This is God, right? He's a God of compassion. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing so terrible we can do that makes that go away. That's compassion. Now, with this in mind, I want us to make sure we continue reading the story because there's a danger here in this. Once we hear this, we're like, oh, this is amazing. We take a step back and we go, is this too good to be true? Wait a second. Hold on. This doesn't seem like it all lines up. There's other stuff in the Bible about holiness and like following rules. Like how, how do we kind of factor all of that into this? And so I want us to just read about the other brother here because it's a really important warning to us. In verse 25, it says this. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come back, and your father has killed the fattened calf, barbecue, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, you're the older brother here. Just, just think about this, right? You're the one who stuck around. You did all the right things. You dotted all the I's. You crossed all the T's. You followed the rules, right? You went to church every Sunday. You went to Anthem every Thursday. You were part of a life group. You had your quiet time. You gave 10%. You gave more than 10%. Every time there was a mission trip, you helped fund it, right? You're doing all the right things. Meanwhile, your brother is just throwing all his money away on all these very worldly things, right? That brother comes back, dad rushes out, embraces him, returns him to sonship because he was never lost out of the sonship process. You're the brother, right? At this point, you're like, oh, cool, my brother is back. How does the older brother respond? Here's what it says. But verse 28, but he was angry. He was angry. No, justice, right? Justice, fairness, no. He wants the dad to come back and be like, oh, so you spent all the money, right? In his, like, revenge fantasy, right? Because sometimes Christians have revenge fantasies. Anytime someone wrongs us, we're driving I-4, someone cuts us off, you're like, persecution It's the gospel. Ah! Right? And in your revenge fantasy, you and the Holy Spirit are partnering up. You're like, yes, plagues upon that person's house. 
right? Plagues upon their house there for cutting me off on I-4. Oh, right? This is what's happening. He's having a revenge fantasy. He's like, turns into the Hulk, right? He was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, talked very sternly with him, right? Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Now who's being entitled and punky, right? It's the older brother. He's doing the same thing the other brother did. He's just, you know, he's doing the other side of it. He's like, hey, wait, wait, I followed all the rules, but you never did this for me, dad, and you never did this for me, dad. And it's like, suddenly becomes like a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. He was here, the wine in here. I, like, I get this, but you know, right? Yeah, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, because that's the hot item that year, right? You're like, okay, what do you want? What's the top of your Christmas list? A young goat, right? That's what I want, Dad. All the kids, they got the young goats. Why does my brother have a young goat? I don't have a young goat. You give me an old goat. I want a young goat. Come on, it was very clear in my Amazon wish list. Did you go to the top? It says goat, comma, young, right? Parentheses, not old. Like, did you not go to this? This is what he, this is the conversation he's having. Verse 30. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property? When the son of yours, do you see that in your Bible? When this son of yours came, he is like pulling out all the not today he has in him, right? When, he doesn't even say his name. I can't even say his name. I can't even, I can't, you cut me off on I-4. I can't even say that name. This Son of yours, neck is going, right? He's suddenly become a drama queen. He's whining, now he's a drama queen. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf barbecue for him. And he said to him, the dad responds, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You have it all. You have it all. What more could you ask, ask for? You literally have all of it. What more am I going to give to you? And you've been with me in the Father's pleasure. What, what more is, could there possibly conceivably be that you would want? Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this is your brother. This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. The warning to us here is this. We need to be aware of our tendency to be the older brother. We need to be aware of our tendency to be the older brother. Right? When we read this story, we love the idea of the compassion of God. Man, we hear about that, that God lavishly loves us no matter what we do. We can't do anything so terrible that he's going to stop loving us. We can't do anything so good that we're ever going to earn more of his love. He just lavishly loves us. Right? We love that. We love it. We love it. And because of that, we start working from the cross, right? We don't work towards the cross. We start working from the cross. We're going to church. We're giving. We're supporting missionaries. We're joining life groups. We're going out and doing personal evangelism. We're leading people to Christ. We're discipling. We're doing all the things we're supposed to be doing, right? Jesus, do you see my scorecard here? It's flawless. Because of what you've done for me, I'm going to go do much for you. This is how we're doing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus saves some person who's like way over here on the outside. And you're like, ugh, that person? That person cut me off on I-4. You would bring them to church? No, I remember the day I took a picture of it. It's, it he gets membership in our church. No, no, no. Look, look, look. He cut me off, right? No, right? And we easily become the older brother, right? We're like, wait, but I'm following the rules. This person didn't do this, and I'm doing all this, and this person didn't do this. How can you? Oh, compassion, Right? Right, 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 right. Because it doesn't matter what I do. You lavishly love me. There's nothing so terrible 
that you're gonna stop loving me even though I haven't done terrible stuff. Have you seen my report card? But the other side's true. There's nothing so good I can do that's gonna make you love me more. And this person falls under that same gracious compassion. Oh, that's right. You gotta be careful. In the Christian church, in the Christian subculture, in Southern Baptist culture, in the South, the South loves, loves them some older brother. The patron saint of Southern Christianity is the older brother, right? Can we, can we be honest about that? That's the patron saint if you're a Southern Christian, if you really buy into that Christian subculture. Because we go to church and we do the thing and we give and, you know, we vote the right way and we talk the right way and we buy guns and, you know, all the things. We watch NASCAR and we love SEC football, right? So, obviously, we're going to heaven. That's just what, what it is, right? No, listen. Be careful. Be careful. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you might feel the tendency to become the older brother. Don't become the older brother. Remember, God is a God of compassion. He's always a God of compassion. And he's going to love people, especially the ones who are trying to be unlovable. That's just the way he does things. We all were once unlovable, and he decided to love us. And that's going to move forward throughout time until Jesus comes and wraps us all up. The other thing I want us to pick up on this, just remember, remember this. Not only is it bad for us to be the other brother because we, we forget um, about what the, uh, the reality of compassion is for God. Being the older brother prevents us ourselves from being compassionate. Being the older brother prevents us from being compassionate. Being the older brother prevents us from showing compassion, right? This is why if the older brother is the patron saint of Southern Christianity, then... You're going to see Southern Christianity be very uncompassionate, incompassionate, non-compassionate, right? We've got to be careful there. Now, I bring up the idea of the older brother because I want you to, to notice something. Because there's a connection between who God is and who we're called to be. You remember in week one what I said is, if God is who he says he is, therefore that means something for us. Well, if God is compassionate, then that means something for us. And we need to be aware of the idea about God's compassion. We need to be aware of the older brother tendency because that's going to prevent us from being compassionate. And I want you to see how the older brother rears his head again as an allegorical figure. He rears his head again in this next story that Jesus tells uh, about the Good Samaritan. So if you want to flip over to uh, Luke, we're in uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, just a few chapters back, starting verse 25. Jesus is telling a story. He's teaching. In verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Hey, pretty open and closed, right? Like, hey, if you will love the Lord, lawyer, God, uh, heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor, you're going to obey everything. You're going to be good. And so you would think Jesus is like, okay, end of, end of lesson. Thank you for turning your assignments. Okay, good. And he's leaving the classroom, right? And then he's, this lawyer obviously is the kid who always, always asks one more question. Uh, how many of you like just can't stand the kid who always asks one more question and keeps you long in lecture? Okay, cool. How many of you are the kid who asks one more question? Yeah, I know you guys are here. I know you guys are here. Yeah, type A personalities. Okay, we'll see how that is. So he does this, verse 29. But he, the kid, daring to justify himself to Jesus, said, 
And who is my neighbor? Wait, wait, I'm confused. Who is my neighbor? Could you clarify that for me? Because it's not clear exactly who my neighbor is. I want to know the limit on who my neighbor is so I don't have to love those people. I'm okay with loving these people. Forget everybody else. Okay, so just tell me where that limit is because I just want to know so I can live within that limit, right? And here's what Jesus answers. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So, if you've ever been in Jerusalem, you know, you know, there's, especially this time period, there are these dirt roads that are kind of built into the mountain. So, you're going around a mountain on a dirt road. You can't see around the mountain. You're walking. Maybe it's nighttime. Some dudes jump out of, like, a bush or a tree, and you're like, ah, and then they beat you up, right? Leave you on the side of the road. If you're half dead in this context, that means, like, you look like you're dead. You're still alive. Billy Crystal would call this mostly dead from The Princess Bride, right? And so you're, you're just, by all external appearances, you're just kind of lying there, right? This guy has been beaten to a pulp. I mean, this is like a really bad situation. He's, if he doesn't get medical help, he's going to be all dead, right? But he's, he looks dead on the side of the road, right? So you get the picture. A priest comes by, sees this body lying there, does this thing, right? It's kind of what we do to homeless people sometimes. We pull up on John Young and they're like walking by saying like, Hey, I need help, and we all do this thing where we're like, what's going on over here? Lock the car door, right? Like, what's, like, you're looking around, you're, like, doing the car door lock thing, like, pretending, like, not making eye contact as they come by you and ask for money. Come on, we all do this, right? Okay, you don't have to admit this now, but I know we all do this. Homeless person comes, it's just like an A. We're like, okay, right? This is what's happening. The priest is like, okay, dead person over there, let me walk to this side and just kind of, because it's a dead person. And this makes sense. It's not just that the priest is being a punk, okay? He's not just being a jerk. If you read back in the Old Testament, when it talks about priestly laws, in fact, in Numbers 19.11, if you want to look this up, Moses writes to the priests, whoever touches a dead body of any person, that person shall be unclean for seven days. So this is what the priest is thinking. There's a dead body right there. I'm on my way to do some priestly type things. If I help this person or address this person, touch this person, I'm unclean for seven days. I've got a priestly gig in two hours. I can't touch this person and then go do my thing, right? This is like a medical doctor walking into surgery and he's like, oh, a booger. and just touches it with his hand and then just goes right into su- surgery, right? This is the uncleanliness factor that we're dealing with here. And so the priest is going, hey, in order to do my job, I've got to not address that person because I'm bound by the Old Testament. I've got to go over here on the other side. He's doing what any priest would do. And anybody hearing the story goes, okay, that makes sense. Like, yeah, he was kind of racist and yeah, he was kind of mean about things, but I get it, right? We're like, okay, yeah, I get it, okay. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite. Levite is a special class of a, a priestly class of people that comes from the tribe of Levi. Very much like a priest, but more like an ethnic priest, I guess would be the, the way to put it. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw the half-dead man on the road, he passed by on the other side. Levite comes, sees him, does the same thing. And you go, okay, what, what's the deal with this, right? Are all these people like going to a medical emergency somewhere? Is there a priest convention in town? Like, what's happening here? Well, the Levites are bound by a similar oath in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 21.11, Moses writes... He shall not go, a Levite, shall not go to any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. Right? So the Levites, they can't touch a dead body. 
if it's their mom or their dad, if they're standing there and mom and dad, they're like at a family reunion holding hands, singing kumbaya, mom and dad, like, like drop dead right there. The Levite has to be like, nobody saw nothing. I'm out of here, right? And just like, just leaves the scene of the crime. That's what a Levite is commanded to do in the Old Testament. I know it's messed up, but I mean, they're just trying to follow what they think the Bible says. They're trying to follow those rules. So they're like, hey, I saw, I saw this. So I'm just like, kind of, you know, I'm going this way, right? This is what's happening. It makes sense. People are in the audience going, man, that seems like really like hateful towards your parents, but I get it, right? It's in the Old Testament. I get it. But then at the very end of this, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, if you don't know who a Samaritan is, a Samaritan is a half-breed, someone who is not purely ethnically Jewish. So they're a Jew and um, from some other country. They're half Jewish, half Mexican, right? They're half Jewish, half Puerto Rican. They're half Jewish, half black, half Jewish, half white, half Jewish, half whatever, right? They're not a full ethnic Jew, right? So here's what you guys should hear in this room. That's all of us, right? Because if you're in this room, chances are not you are not Jewish, like fully Jewish. You are some kind of mix. You're a mutt just like the rest of us. This is all of us. This is us in this room right here. This is, we would be here. The benefit of being kind of a mixed person in here is you are not bound by some of these priestly Levitical codes. You have the whole field at your disposal. You're a kind of person who comes from a messy background. Guess what? God's going to turn that mess into a ministry. And this is what's happening right here. The half Jew comes in here. The mixed breed person comes here, has no religious restrictions, walks by, sees the person and goes, okay, I'll help out. When he saw him, he had, and here's the word, compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus looks and looks at the man and says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy or compassion. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? If Jesus is your Lord, if the compassionate Lord of the universe is your Lord, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Go and do likewise. God has not called us to be the priestly class or the Levitical class or the older brother who is by all means holding the law, keeping all the rules, making sure everything is over here, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. He hasn't called us to be rule followers. He's called us to be God followers, right? And the rules are there and they're important and they help us. I'm not dismissing the rules. I'm not knocking the priest. I'm not knocking the Levite. Rules are there, but rules are secondary to who Jesus is. And so what he calls us to do is to go and do likewise, to be like Jesus. If you need a rule of thumb on anything, you look to Jesus. I'm not telling you to be anti-law. I'm not telling you to break the rules and be a rebel. I'm saying this. You don't need to be a rebel. You need to follow the rebel. Okay? Jesus is going to set your rebellion for you. You just do what Jesus wants. That's all the rebellion you need in life, right? You just do what Jesus does because he's the one who's compassionate. He's the one who's good. He's the one who's great. If you're someone who's here today, who's with us, here's what I think God would say to you. He would say it in verse 37. Go and do likewise. If God never withheld, uh, withheld, uh, withholds compassion from his children, 
If God will never withhold compassion from his children, then we must become the kind of people who do not withhold compassion from our friends. We must become the kind of people who do not withhold compassion from our friends. God's the kind of God who never withholds compassion from anyone. And if he's the kind of God who never withholds compassion from someone, then our call to go and do likewise is to, is to become the kind of people who do not withhold compassion from our friends. So, how can we be, avoid being the older brother, the priest, the Levite? How can we avoid being that type of Christian? Because I think if you're raised in Southern culture, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Southern Baptist, whatever, right? You come from the Caribbean islands, you come from Latin America, you come from Florida or Texas, right? Or Alabama, right? You're, the, the temptation is to, <coughs> excuse me, is to become a Levite. The temptation is to become the older brother. So what do we do? And here's what I think we do. There are four things. Number one, I think we have to learn to lead with compassion. Meaning the first thing out of our mouth, the first action is compassion. Remember, you can always say more, louder, later. So our default reflex as believers is to be compassionate. Our default reflex is to be compassionate. We say, hey, Jesus, no matter what happens, no matter what scenario, I'm going to try to lead with compassion. Let compassion be the thing that goes ahead of us. For example, if you've got a, a girlfriend, right, and she starts dating that guy, you know who that guy is, right? You always have this conversation with your girlfriends, or your guys too, he's dating that girl. You're like, oh, so you're dating that guy, right? So, or maybe it's like this. She's like, oh, I was talking to so-and-so the other day, and you're like, him, right? Like that guy, right? And so she starts dating, and then you kind of pull her aside, and you're like, listen, it's none of my business, but for what it's worth, I think he's Satan. Um, <laughs> he literally has 666 tattooed on his forehead and his forearm. Like, let's just think that, like, it wasn't an accident. He got a second one. So he's trying to tell you something about himself, right? So you're dating that person, right? You have the conversation, and she's just like, oh, not today, not today, you know? You don't get to give me dating advice. Remember when you dated him? Well, I get to date this guy because this is retributive justice, and eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. <laughs> I'm dating him, right? And she does all that thing. She responds poorly, right? She does all that right? Okay, so and then a few months go on. She comes home one day, and she just has the, like, the this day. You know what this day is where she comes in? She opens the door. And like, she's to your apartment. She opens the door. And she's like, <sighs> she runs to the bathroom, closes the door. Like she's in there 30 minutes. And you're like, oh, I know what's about to happen. It's going down. Comeuppance is having a day, right? Yeah. She comes out. She gets ready to talk. And she's like, Ugh. right? Goes back to the bathroom. Comes back out and finally sits down. You make her a cup of coffee. You slide it across the kitchen. Girl, tell me about it. Tell me about it. going through the whole thing, right? Now, at this point, you have two options. You start feeling that older brother come up, right? Oh, all right. Come on, wait. Come on. Here's another Kleenex. Wait, wait for you to just breathe in that moment of silence so I can just swing, right? And you know what you're swinging. You're loading up the I told you so right here, right? You have it. You're like, how am I going to say this? In Espanol? In English? En Francais? How are we doing this, Okay. She, and you're like, oh yeah, so the guy with the 666 tattoo broke your heart? I told you so! <laughs> right? Right. 
This is what we want to do, right? We're the, that's the older brother talking. That's not what we do. We lead with compassion. You don't go, I told you so. You can always say more louder later. And maybe I told you so, maybe shouldn't, maybe shouldn't ever come up into the, into play. We can talk about that later. But here's what you say. Girl, I'm so sorry. Because right now, the thing that's most hitting you is your emotions. It's how sad you are. I'm never going to be able to beat you up as much as you're beating yourself up right now. So now is not the time for me to tell you I told you so and be the older brother. Now is the time for me to come over on the side of the road of a half-dead body and woo and help you heal and get back to wholeness. It's time to take you to a hospital and help you get well. It's time to emotionally be the person who has compassion. It's time for me to love you despite the fact that you were incredibly unlovable earlier. It's time to lead with compassion. That's number one. Number two. Remember, compassion affects our approach, our tone, and our words. Compassion affects our approach, our tone, and our words. We tend to think it's just the script we say, right? We just read the script. It's not what we say. It's how we say it and how we approach saying it, right? Because sometimes, okay, guys, let's flip the script. Guy comes home. You know, she broke up with me, and then she posted on the internet about how a terrible kisser I am, and... You know, she started dating my best friend immediately and just Instagram photos with them, you know, right? Having one of those moments and you knew like this was not the right girl, right? To go back to the first sermon, she was great, but she was not that good, right? That kind of person, okay? Now you go, I know I need to lead with compassion. And so you're like this. I'm so sorry for you, right? This must be so hard, <laughs> right? Come here, I love you. And you just get real robotic about that hug, right? Like, you know, I had no idea this was going to happen. Sorry, excuse me. I had no idea this was going to happen. Sorry. Right? <laughs> yeah, you must be really heartbroken. <laughs> you idiot. Right? It's not just the words you're using. It's the tone. It's the approach. It's your motives. Before you speak, be like Nehemiah, who going before the king said, Okay, God, I'm about to give this pitch here. Let me make sure everything's right. Okay. I'm about to comfort my friend here. I'm about to be compassionate. I don't feel like I have a compassionate heart. I have a judgmental older brother heart right now. So Jesus, please help me remember the gospel that I was once a punk and you loved me anyway. So help me to love this person with the same type of compassion. Amen. Right? They may think you're weird if you do that, like in front of them, right? They're crying and you close your eyes and... But that's not the worst thing in the world, right? Whatever you got to do to check yourself before you wreck yourself, do it. It, it. It's tone, it's words, it's everything when you're being compassionate to a friend. Number three, you can make a point or you can make a difference. You can make a point, you can make a difference. Those are your options. She comes in, she's heartbroken. 666 boy left her. You're like, okay, I can tell you I told you so and that would make my point, right? That I am smart and you are dumb, okay? And this would be the fourth time we've had this conversation. You should be listening to me by now, but I digress, right? That's the making a point, older brother, priestly, Levitical way of doing things. No, 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 no. Or you can make a difference. Or you can make a difference. Okay? Jesus doesn't need more point makers. He needs difference makers. Okay, let me say that one more time. Jesus doesn't need more point makers. You've got plenty of people out there that want to talk about the Bible and on different news shows and talk about what Jesus wants and who Jesus hates and all that stuff. We get a lot of point makers out there, okay? We get the point, okay? We get the point. It's enough. Jesus needs difference makers. Difference makers lead with compassion. If you want to be a difference maker, lead with compassion in your words, your tone, and everything. And finally, 
Remember that vulnerability is your cue. If they're vulnerable, compassion is your disposition. If she comes to you and she's crying and is being vulnerable about her heartbreaking, compassion is your cue. It's what's to do. Compassion is your lead, right? If he comes to you and he's heartbroken, compassion is the thing to have. Now, keep in mind, compassion can go one of two ways, right? Compassion can be very soft or very loud. Some of us are going to come in, right? They're going to be sad. They're, they're going to show heads going to be lowered. They're going to be very full of shame and guilt. That may be one vulnerable cue. Another one is, and keep in mind, I want you to be prepared. Some of it's loud. They're angry. They're projecting on you. You knew this was going to happen. In fact, you've been praying against it. I know you and Jesus conspiring against me and my boyfriend. You probably got my mom on the telephone. How dare you? Right? Like just the anger is coming out. That's still emotion. It's still vulnerable. Remember, if you sense vulnerability, your disposition is compassion. I want to show you guys a scene from a film which I think perfectly illustrates this idea of compassion. It's a film called Mona Lisa Smile. It's a, you know, it's a riveting story about uh, lots of women at a college in the 1940s. I'm sure you guys are going to want to go rush home and read this, you know, watch this right now. In the scene, there are four women in the scene. Let me describe them. You've got Julia Stiles. Her character is just kind of the married woman who's still in college. She comes to the college for the day. She has a really good marriage. Uh, she hangs out with her friends, but then in the evening she goes back to her husband. They live kind of in the suburbs. You have uh, the second lady who's the, the oboe player, Jennifer uh, Goodwin. Um, and she's, she's an oboe cello player. And she's just like a single lady who's trying to like go to college and kind of meet boys and just kind of there and there. She goes on a date with this one guy and she's telling Julia Stiles at it at the very beginning of the scene. Just having a, you know, girl moment right there with her friends. In the other room, you have Kirsten Dunst, blonde hair, also married. But her marriage is in shambles because her husband's cheating on her. And it's the worst kept secret in the college. Everyone knows it. But she is an older brother. And she's trying to keep up like everything's fine. No, 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 that's not happening. No, 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 we're fine. Everything's fine, whatever. Yeah, but she's become the judgmental one. And there's one girl who, who generally gets the brunt of all of her frustration and her projection. And it's the fourth girl, which is played by Maggie Joan Hall. Maggie Joan Hall is the girl who sleeps around. She's very vocal about the fact that she sleeps around. She sleeps around with everybody. She talks about it. She brags about it. Seems not to care about it. And in this scene, Maggie Gyllenhaal is going to come in and brag about one of her recent sexual exploits. And Kirsten Dunst is going to just let her have it. She's going to unload on her. She's going to be loudly vulnerable. Now, if you're Maggie Gyllenhaal in this, your tendency might be like, oh, we're going to go there. Oh, we're going there. We're going there. Okay. Okay. Right. You see Maggie, she's starting to do this. And you're like, okay, this is about to be like a girl brawl, right? This is happening. This is like a cage match at UFC. This is happening right now. We have a Holly Holm situation. This is not a drill. Like, this is happening. But I want you to watch how Maggie responds because it is one of the most compassionate um, depictions in all of art. Take a look. Brunch. We stayed up all night too. Not talking. The psychoanalyst. Again. Divine exhaustion. He's married. He's not married like you and Tommy are married. What does that mean? It means he and his wife don't speak the same language. Spelled S E X. Does he pain? 
For sex? I mean, at the rate you're going, you could make a fortune. Really? Everyone thinks so. Do you know what they say? They say you're a whore. Pretty soon, once they've all said that you, they'll toss you aside like a used rat. Betty, stop now! The men you love doing nothing. Your father doesn't want you. I'm gonna meet you downstairs. Professor Dunbar! Betty, that's enough! Yeah. Everybody knows what you hide outside his house! It must be torturous running after a man who doesn't even care about you. Who's in love with someone else. He hates you! He hates you! Betty. And it hurts! Ah, no! Get quiet! Sorry. 